0: Well, good morning again. You guys ready to dive into Nehemiah? Um, I want to start out this morning. uh, We'll we'll pray in a second. Uh, We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20 this morning. And as we've been working through Nehemiah, it's been been really good for my heart, actually. Um, Every week I feel like... If you're not getting anything out of it, I'm getting something out of it. And, uh, and so I, I'm excited to continue on through our study in Nehemiah. But last week, Dan did such an amazing job walking us through the first part of Nehemiah chapter 2. And in this book in Nehemiah, it's, it's given us a lot to think about. It's a short book in the Old Testament, but it's so profound once you start digging into it. And so what we've been looking at in the book of Nehemiah is basically how God historically rebuilt and restored his people. And so now he's bringing them back from this devastating, like, low point for their nation. And so as you read through the the book of Nehemiah, one of the major themes that we'll continue seeing played out over and over again is Israel's physical destruction and and their desolation, but that being representative of their spiritual state and and their relationship with God. And so here's another way to look at this is, uh, I, I was thinking this past week, a year and a half ago, or so, a year and three months ago, I got really sick with COVID. And when when I got sick, how do we first know that we're sick? Like we have symptoms, right? There's something that starts showing that tells us that we are actually sick. Uh, and so I lost my taste. I, I lost. I had a fever. Um, I had body chills. I was coughing. It didn't take a doctor to tell me that I was sick. There were symptoms that were showing that let me know that there was a problem. And the problem wasn't just that Chris had a cough, the problem wasn't just uh, that I was running a little hot or that I was just exhausted. The, The symptoms in and of themselves are not the problem, But the symptoms always point to the problem. And so this is one way to understand why the the physical destruction of Israel and its walls is such a big deal for the people of Israel, because it was a symptom of something that was far worse for them than the fact that they didn't have city walls. It, it, It was indicative of something way, way greater. And so what it actually revealed was this underlying condition of sin It revealed a broken relationship with their God, and this is really important for us to keep in mind as we continue reading through Nehemiah, because if we don't understand this, then we're not going to see, uh, then what we're not, what we're going to see as we read through the book of Nehemiah is basically just this manual for leadership, and and a manual on how to manage construction projects if we don't see the deeper thing, But, but Nehemiah's He's doing something much bigger than just rebuilding a wall, and I hope that we can see that through this process. He's been praying. He's been fasting. He's been pleading with the Lord to be able to be a part of rebuilding God's people, not just a physical structure. And you see this theme from the very beginning of the book, as Nehemiah, as it says in chapter one, that Jerusalem, God's city lies in ruins. And so Nehemiah understands that that this is more than just some broken down walls that need a fresh coat of paint on them, right? That it was devastating news for Nehemiah, and he responds accordingly. He weeps, he mourns, he fasts, he prays. He prays for months on end. And then he prays that God would rebuild his people like God promised that he would. And so he spends time praying persistently, he prays constantly, he's waiting on the Lord in prayer, he's brainstorming and thinking about how he can be part of this rebuilding process. And then last week, we saw that his months of prayer had finally began to be answered. And it's not as though God was just sort of like sitting idly by and letting Nehemiah's phone calls go to voicemail, right? And then he finally decides, okay, I'm gonna answer Nehemiah's messages. But God had actually been sovereignly aligning, and coordinating the events and the details which finally all come to a head in this miraculous conversation that Dan presented last week that Nehemiah has with this king, Artaxerxes. And in their conversation, Nehemiah asked the king uh, that that he works for at the time, uh, if he can go off to Jerusalem. Like 1,600 miles away. He asked the king to pay for all the costs of rebuilding the walls and the city gates. And so just for some context for you guys, there's 10 city gates that have to be rebuilt, two and a half miles of walls, 40 feet tall. This is a massive undertaking, major construction project. And then he asks for protection while they're traveling there. Like, can the king send them with uh, the, the entourage they need to get there safely? And Then he asks them, can you also give me a house to live in while I'm there working on the project? And the king says, sure. Like, I'll give you all of these things. And not only that, but it says that it actually pleased the king to do these things for Nehemiah. So it pleased this Persian king to do for this Jewish man what he felt like the Lord was asking him to do. Like, the whole thing doesn't really make sense. But what we see is that God's hand was on Nehemiah the whole time. And Nehemiah makes sure that we know that he actually understands this reality, that God was with him, that God's God's hand was upon him. And we see God working through Nehemiah. And then God didn't just show up to work in this one conversation with the king. God had been orchestrating the whole conversation to begin with. This whole situation is just a complete miracle. It's actually insane when you think about what had to align in order for this to happen. It would have been unheard of that a Jewish man would be in the situation with the king of Persia to begin with. And so for those of us who are Christians in this room, we don't believe in coincidence, right? God was not just sovereignly answering Nehemiah's prayer in this one moment. He hasn't just been answering Nehemiah's prayers for four months previous to that moment. But God had literally been answering prayers by orchestrating Nehemiah's birth. Like since his birth, God had been orchestrating things since Nehemiah was brought into the family he was born into, into the city that he was born into, into the time that he was born into, to have the relationships that he had, to have the gifts that he was been, had been given, to have the favor with the people that he had, to be equipped with like, the theological convictions that he had, to have this profound faith that Nehemiah had in order to be present and faithful and willing to be a man for such a time as this. like All these things had to come together. Like, There's a ton of sovereignty going on here in this story. And what I hope you see is that God doesn't just like drive an ambulance, right? When I say that, he doesn't just arrive on a scene and see a mess and say, oh, like how do we fix this? But God has actually had a plan. And he's had a plan for his people since the beginning of time. And he's been orchestrating all of this for his people. And the reality is that he's orchestrating that for you today. He's been at work since the beginning of time orchestrating every single facet of your life. And that orchestration started before you were born. And that orchestration will go through until the end of days, until the end of time. That's the God of the Bible. He's that personal and that at work in your life. And the Bible tells us of this grand narrative that's being played out throughout the book of Nehemiah. The story of Nehemiah really is just a blip on the radar in God's grand narrative, his story. It's a tick on the hand of God's cosmic clock, right? It's just a brief moment. But it's moving toward this like inevitable and complete restoration and redemption of God's people. That was the whole purpose. And so this morning, we get to see Nehemiah arriving in Jerusalem for the first time in his life. He's never been there, he's Jewish. Never been to Jerusalem. Born and raised in Persia. Working under a Persian king. And he comes to Jerusalem for the first time in his life. It's this city that he's walking into that he's heard stories of. It's his people, it's in his lineage but he's never been there. He's heard stories about this city, the beloved city of God, and his work is just about to get started. And so before we even jump in this morning, I want to pray for us, because as I was reading through this this morning over and over again, I just kept thinking like there is there is definitely a word in here for some of you in this room this morning. And there are mornings when I get up here to teach, and like I don't normally get nervous or anxious about coming up to preach, and on the Sundays when I do, I just feel like there's something that God wants to do that I just need to get out of the way, and so this morning, like, I I want you to bow your heads. I want to pray for us. I have no idea what God wants to speak to you through this book, but what I would ask of you this morning is that you tune out the mess of your week and the mess of your morning, and you sit in the presence of the most high God this morning, trusting that he's been orchestrating your life to this day to this minute in this second. There's a purpose that you sit in this room this morning and you thought you were just coming to church. And God said, your whole life has been building up to this moment. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I, I thank you for your church and the time that we get together. I thank you, God, that it's you that's building your church. And your word says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You started this work, you will continue this work, and you will see this work through. And this morning, I give you this time. I pray that you'd take your word, Jesus, it's not mine. That you'd unpack it for your people, and that you'd instill it in our hearts. And this morning, God, some of us in this room, we find ourselves just in a mess, in really difficult spots, wondering where God's at in the midst of all of this trying to trust that God actually is in control and that he's seen my life through up until this moment and questioning why things have happened and where things have gone. And this morning, I'm just asking for the peace of the most high God to rest upon us. Help us to chill out this morning, Lord, to turn our attention, our hearts, our minds towards you this morning and to allow your word to do its work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. You guys can say a word when you, Are you guys with me? Are you like dying? Are you asleep? Like We're talking about the sovereignty of God. And you're like, eh, I don't, know, I don't know. All right. Nehemiah 2, verse 9 and 10. Then I came to the governors of the, of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sambalot the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Does that not just sound evil? <laughs> so Nehemiah has set out on his journey to Jerusalem, which is about a three or four month journey on horseback. And there's a couple of details that I think are really important to see in these couple of verses. One is that Nehemiah is traveling with the king's letters And also with a pretty significant military escort that that includes the king's officers and and, and horsemen. That's just not a couple of bodyguards. He's actually got a whole military entourage that's traveling with him through the desert. The other thing is that we're introduced to two people who who are basically going to become these thorns in Nehemiah's side. Um, For the remainder of the book of Nehemiah, you'll continue to see these two people reference. Uh, we'll talk about them in a bit because they're going to be mentioned again. But right now, what you need to know is that Nehemiah is not welcome. Like, he's not welcome in Israel. But but maybe, even more importantly, the work that he's doing is not wanted. There's opposition against what Nehemiah is feeling the Lord is calling him, knows the Lord is calling him to do. And it says that he was seeking the welfare of his people And the opposition in Israel didn't want this. Like you're gonna see Sambalot and and Tobiah become like fairly hostile and, and angry over Nehemiah's presence and his work in Jerusalem. They do not want it to happen. This is why Nehemiah had to have an armed escort to get to Jerusalem. There were people that did not want it to take place. Nehemiah 2, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire, and then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass." Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So nobody knows what he's there to do. So Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem after this long journey, and it mentions that he rests there for three days before doing any inspecting of the damage in Jerusalem. And so you start to see some of Nehemiah's personality traits sort of coming out in these passages. One thing that you start to see in these verses is how methodical and meticulous Nehemiah is. Like God built him in a very specific way to see very specific things. There's some practical points of wisdom that I think we can take away from these verses as we see how Nehemiah, this godly man, engages with the work that he's called to do. The first thing you see is the importance of rest, like as it actually goes hand in hand with work, right? So he gets there and he spends three days recovering from the journey. He doesn't jump right in. Like it's a pretty epic journey for, three, for months across this desert. Like I don't think that this is like necessarily advocating for three-day weekends to happen every single week. But I do think that there's an interesting principle that's taking place here. that that even the most competent, even the most faithful men and women of God know their limitations as humans. They realize that they can't go, go, go all the time, that they need rest and they understand the importance of being rested for the work that God has actually called us to do. He sits for three days before he jumps in. If I was Nehemiah, I'd be like getting to the city like let's do this, you know what I mean? Like let's just go for it and he waits three days. And this is something that extends, I'll go off on this tangent for a second, but it extends into ministry, it extends into schoolwork, it extends into your jobs, your job as a parent. The, 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 the reality that effective and faithful work comes from a place of faithful rest in God. This is something that we have to learn. Some of us in this room may tend to rest too much, right? That's called laziness. And, and we might lean towards being like a sluggard, you know? But maybe we struggle like in our procrastination to actually attack the work that God has called us to do. So I, I think that's that's one end of the spectrum that sometimes we lean toward. Others of us might lean to this other end of the spectrum where we don't rest enough. Like we're more apt to just jump in and get tasks done quickly and err on the side of just totally overworking ourselves. That's me most of the time, just to be radically honest. And what typically happens is that people on both ends of the spectrum end up kind of swinging to one end of the spectrum or the other, kind of like the seesaw between like overworking and underworking. Like we overwork and kill ourselves and then all of a sudden we burn out and we need to rest. And so then we, the pendulum swings the other side. Now we're just going to like sit for a while, right? And then, And then we're going to have to jump back in. And when we jump back in, we can't find moderation or anything. We don't know how to balance our lives. And so we just do this with our lives going back and forth and back and forth but another piece of wisdom that we can glean from this is as we see how Nehemiah actually approaches his work the, the importance of him counting the cost like I love this about this section Nehemiah doesn't rush onto the scene with a hammer and a bag of bricks and just start chipping away at a wall that's not how he approaches the situation this isn't like some quick church work day, you know, like where everybody shows up and we just, we have a couple hours to bang out a project. And so we're all just going to get to it and get it done and we're all going to go home. But Nehemiah actually goes and he begins inspecting the walls, like taking note of what's going on to understand the project before he even decides how it is he's going to divvy it up and what it's going to look like, the process that's going to take place. And so Nehemiah, he's prudent, like he's thoughtful. He's careful about what he's doing. He really wants to do this well and to do it exceptionally. He wants to do an excellent job with the work that God has called him to do. He's going to be faithful. God called him to do this. He's going to do it with everything he has. Let me ask you a question this morning. As a follower of Jesus, What is the difference between your heavenly calling and the work that you do every single day? What's the difference between the the ministry that God's given to you and the work at your job, or as a student, or, or as a parent? And I would argue that there's no difference between the two but that the work that you are doing is what you've been called to do, at least in this specific moment in time. If you're a student, the Lord has called you to be a student and to learn and to take exams and to do really well as a student. If you work as a software engineer, God's called you to write code behind a desk, like to do that faithfully, to do that excellently. If you work as a parent, and you're changing a diaper, like, do it the best that you can, right? Change that diaper and do it with as much spunk as you can, right? There you go. But I say all of this because I think some of us actually sit and we mindlessly do the work that's right in front of us. It's easy to get in rhythms, like, where we just aren't even paying attention to it. We're not doing it well, we're just doing it because it, To us, it may seem like a menial task. And so we're constantly, I hear people talking about this all the time, we're constantly pondering, what has God called me to do? Anybody in this room asked that question in the last week? Only, dang, I feel like I ask it daily. (laughs) Oh, man. But some of us in this room, we're literally waiting for this divine moment where the heavens open up and we hear the audible voice of God asking us to do something. What we should study in school, how we can use the gifts and, and the abilities that God's given us to bring glory to Him. But what we should not do is just gloss over the fact that God has given each of us a task to do right here and now. And is not sitting there saying, God, what are you calling me to do with my life? Like, what, what is it you're asking of me? Like, I know you've got me on this wall project right now, but like, you know, what's the big goal? What, what's the my big call? What's the big calling that you have for my life? He's not asking that question. And so Nehemiah rests. Nehemiah counts the cost And he's doing everything the best possible way that he knows how to do it because he knows that the work that's in front of them is the work that God has actually called them to do. It's the work that Nehemiah was actually created to do, to build the stinking wall, the seemingly mundane task of rebuilding an ancient wall. I mean, practically speaking, Nehemiah is basically a civil engineer. Any other civil engineers in the house that can relate to our bro Nehemiah this morning? But Nehemiah, for, for him, this is a heavenly calling. Like it's a, like a divine legacy for him. And I think that Nehemiah understood and embraced the significance in this moment as well because he took his calling seriously. He knew the Lord asked him to do it, no matter how meaning, meaningless the task may have felt. One thing I want to challenge you with is that you're not on your way to your calling, Anthem. That's just a really crappy way to look at life. That you're just always on your way to your calling. The challenge for all of us is to figure out how we live out each of our individual callings right here and right now, in the moment, in the season we're in, not on the way to something bigger and greater. Like, that is the American way to constantly assess how this project sets me up for bigger things next. And so we're always looking at everything we do as the next rung in the ladder. Nehemiah looks at this whole project as if it's it's his last. I'm going to give everything to it because the Lord's asked me to do it. And I sometimes struggle with being fully present, like personally, in the now. Like, I struggle with not being captivated with, with the future and what could be. My prayer for myself and my, my prayer for us is that we would embrace our heavenly calling, that we would press into our work, that the projects you have, the roles that you've been given, whether you're an employee, a manager, a student, a parent, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a neighbor, whatever it is, maybe you're running AV in the back this morning, you're playing worship up front, whatever it is, the hope is that you would prayerfully engage with God about what it is that He's asked you to do right now, what it is you're doing right now. That's your calling as a follower of Jesus. It's not always what's next. It's faithful with what's right, being faithful with what with what's right before you. And so I want to ex- exhort you to work hard to do excellent work with all of your might knowing that That it's the work that God has called you to do today. Like, this is your legacy right here. Like, ponder that for a second. And Nehemiah is somebody who's pondered that. He's embraced this calling as a civil engineer of sorts for the Lord. He's literally resting and working hard, and he's living it out. And after he takes time to assess the damage to the walls in Jerusalem, he goes around and he inspects everything, and he comes back. And look what he does in verse 17. Says, then I said to them, You see the trouble that we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that way that, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me, and they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So Nehemiah finally approaches this team, which we don't even know how in the world Nehemiah built this team to begin with, raise up this group of people in a city that he's never been to before. But I think we get kind of a glimpse into the kind of leader that Nehemiah was. But I think that people want to follow people that are willing to do more than just talk about a good idea. There's a lot of people that talk a good game, that say a lot of things about the great things that they would like to do someday, or they hope to do. There's few that say, I'm going to actually do it. I mean, think about this. For a hundred years, people have been walking around this city, stepping over the rubble. Think about this. They live in the city, they've been stepping over the rocks, looking at the torn down walls for a hundred years. You think anybody in 100 years was like, oh, man, maybe we should rebuild this thing. Somebody thought that. I guarantee you. Somebody's like, oh, man, I really liked it the way it used to be, you know? We need this wall. Nobody stepped up to take the task. God burdens the heart of this cupbearer in Persia and gives him everything he needs to travel 1,600 miles down to help rebuild a wall for the people that he did not know but were part of him. What an amazing thing. And so after assessing all this damage and he counts the cost, Nehemiah proceeds to give this like epic rallying speech. Like one of the many that you see in this book. And it's fairly brief. And there's four things that Nehemiah does in the speech that we're going to look at real quick. One, he honestly reveals the the current state of things. He gives them a a real clear assessment of where things are at. Two, he reminds them why the current state of things should not be something that they can just live with. Three, he calls them to a vision for something better. And then four, he inspires them to have confidence in God as they do it. And I want to look at each of these. The first one, After his his overnight inspection, um, verse 17, it says, you you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. So the, the first point here is that he reveals the state of things. Like, what's the reality? They're in trouble. The gates are in ruin. Like, what's interesting to me about this is he's saying something that they already know, right? Oh, really? I couldn't tell by looking at it. But one thing I want you to notice is how Nehemiah identifies with this trouble. I want you to see this picture, this is so cool. He says, you see the trouble, and then what's he say there? We are in. This is a really significant statement. Like, rewind back eight months in Nehemiah's life. He didn't even know about the trouble eight months prior to this. He didn't know that the walls were torn down. He didn't know that the city was in great shame. It it gets reported to him in chapter one, four months prior to this. His brother Hanani says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And even there in that report, it's mentioned that the remnant there, again, in the province who had survived the exile, was in great shame. It says the remnant. He's referring to him as they, them. The remnant there is in great shame. And at this point, it's still not Nehemiah's problem. But what Nehemiah does is he takes real great care and compassion for his people, He weeps and he mourns. He prays for four months. Then he takes these steps to risk his job. He leaves his home. He travels thousands of miles across the land for four months to a place he's never been, to be with people he's never met before in order to make their problem his problem. That's just nuts. Who, that sounds crazy, right? He didn't just pray and send some money. He actually went. He goes with the plan like he goes there to do it with them and and what we see is that god godly compassion is this relentless force to be reckoned with there's something about it like if it sounds familiar to to you it's because this is the gospel of jesus It's what Jesus has done for you and me. He sees us in our trouble, right? He sees us in our shame. He sees us in our guilt. He sees us in our shame. And what he does is he leaves his home in heaven. And Jesus comes to earth. He crosses from heaven into earth, which is a far greater journey journey than Persia to Jerusalem. And he does this to identify as one of us. This is what Jesus does to make our problem his problem, that's Christ. And then Jesus sits with us and he's here with us and ultimately he gives his life up for us, not his problem, our problem, he takes our problem on himself to redeem us. That's a pretty amazing story. And we see this picture of Christ in Nehemiah, like this foreshadowing of sorts, like his heart of compassion, his willingness to sacrifice, it all points back to Jesus. And so as we read through the book, we'll see how he continues to point to Jesus in other ways that he lives out this calling that God's given him. But we see Nehemiah honestly revealing the state of things. He reminds them of why the current state of things should not be something that they can just live in. And then at the same time, he calls them to a higher vision. And he does all this in verse 17. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. So that's the vision that he's calling them to. We're going to build this wall. And then he says, what? That we may no longer suffer derision. So there's the why. So come build so that we no longer suffer derision. Like, this is a reiteration of that same theme. This rebuilding is not about vanity, right? Nehemiah reminds Israel that their current state has a spiritual and an emotional ramification and implication, so he calls them to rebuild, not just so that they'll have some nice walls, some amazing gates to look at, that the city will just be awesome again, but because the place that they're at in its current state is actually causing shame. It's causing derision. They're the laughing stock of the nations. They're being mocked openly. This theologian, Raymond Brown, says this in his commentary about this passage. Far more serious than the physical desolation is the spiritual disgrace. It is a reproach to the name of God, a matter for scorn and abuse among Jerusalem's pagan neighbors and visitors. The sign of those collapsed walls for well over a century has created the impression in the pagan mind that Israel's God had abandoned his rebellious people and is no longer on their side. You see, Israel needs to repent and rebuild because God's name is being profaned in their rebellion. Like They're tarnishing God's name in the midst of the rebellion. This is the hard truth, but it's not about them. The the rebuilding is not about them. This is not sort of like this therapeutic self-care. It's not all about them. It's about God. The rebuilding is about building God's people. And so this call to rebuild is primarily motivated out of This heart for God's glory, this heart for God's name, not for them, not to point back to their city, not to point back for themselves, to themselves, but to point back to God. And the fruit of it also blesses the people, right? Some of us need to hear these words this morning, and some of us might be sitting literally this morning in the rubble of our sin. Some of us are reaping the consequences of our rebellion in our life from God. Like, we've turned, we've ran, And so I think that what we need to hear is that it's time to repent and rebuild. That's an amazing opportunity that you've been given in Christ. Because the reality is if we're claiming to be Christians and we're walking in blatant sin, like we're walking in opposition to God, if we're professing Christ but we've grown comfortable in a life of desolation, that's not a life that's honoring to God. That's not what he's called us to. We're literally tarnishing his name among the nations while we go out and just make a fool of God. But that's the biggest problem with our sin is not just how it affects us, but the impact that it has on God. And so the encouragement is to come and build for the glory of God, which actually happens to be a benefit for you and I. This is Peter's sermon in Acts chapter three. Peter says, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, is what Peter says. Harsh word to a bunch of religious people, as Peter preaches this. So that's the rebellion portion, like, let's clean up this rubble. Let's rebuild. But then in verse 20, he says, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Gosh, that's a word for us. Repent and turn back. That sounds harsh. Like, are you kidding me? You're going to talk about sin. You're going to talk about rebellion. You're going to talk about like me living my God, my my life in blatant opposition to God. Like, this sounds like wah wah, right? (laughs) But verse twenty says so that. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of Lord. And so there's this idea that when we commit to the rebuilding, that it's good for us, that it's actually good for God, that when we commit ourselves to the glory of God in his name, it actually benefits us, his children. And so don't grow comfortable and complacent in the rubble, friends. Don't get comfortable there like they were walking around it, stepping over it, constantly saying, I wish that would change or somebody would do something about it. If somebody did this, my life would be so much better. When the reality is, Nehemiah takes the plan, engages it, rallies the people, gets the supplies, makes the notes, and starts putting the plan together. And that's how Israel is gonna experience restoration, not just in the rebuilding of a wall, but their turning of their attention in their lives back to God. And so in this section, Nehemiah is revealing sort of the current state of things. He's reminding them why they shouldn't just live in that pile of rubble, and he calls them to this vision. Then the last part is he inspires them to have confidence in God. And this is really important because the, the vision of rebuilding that he's calling people to do is super costly for these people. It's going to require these people to leave their jobs. They're going to leave their farms. They're going to leave the only way they know to make income. They're going to leave their homes. It's going to require them to face serious opposition in their life. It's going to put them in socially and politically vulnerable positions. They're going to risk their lives doing it. And so they need a really good reason to do all these things so that they have some confidence that this is actually the right thing to do. And the reason that Nehemiah gives them is not in the form of a resume, like, oh, yeah, I'm a civil engineer. I've done a lot of this work before. I have 100% success rate. He doesn't flex his credentials, he doesn't inspire them to have confidence in himself, even. But what he could have done was to build their confidence even in the king of Persia who provided all the resources for him to come go and gave him the opportunity to do so. But he doesn't do that. He says in verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And so the the, the king's mentioned, but it's in a greater context of like God's provision and his blessing over this entire project. And so Nehemiah inspires confidence in the people by sharing this testimony of what God has done in his life. So how do people respond to this? Kind of a nerve-wracking moment. Like, you're trying to get people excited. You're casting a vision as a leader. Like, you're waiting to see how people respond to it. Like, what do you guys think? And so as a leader, like, it's the most nerve-wracking part is throwing something out there and waiting to see what people say and having no idea how they're going to respond. And then in verse 18... It's like the leader's dream. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work. There's no grumbling. There's no moaning. There's no complaining. There's no whining. Not even a question. They just jump into it. And Nehemiah's testimony of God's blessing is powerful. And when he combines that with this like methodical work of counting the costs and trying to figure out exactly what they need to do, like combined with prayer, and then starting this process of rebuilding the wall, like he makes a really compelling case for these people to follow him. What a beautiful moment in unity for God's people, like, for for them to take a moment and just, like, resolve together as they're sitting in this heaps of rubble and ash and to look around and see what they're sitting in and say, you know what? We've been sitting in it long enough. Like, it's time to rebuild. It's time to repent. We know how far off we've gone. It's time to turn back to the Lord, and it's a sweet moment in community, that Israel hasn't experienced for a 100 years up to this point. It's a big deal. And I love the detail at the end of 18. It says, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. In other words, they rolled up their sleeves. They got to work. The work that God had been calling them to do. Now, there's, I'll, I'll end with this. There's some individual and some sort of communal corporate applications for this text for us as a church and how to apply this into our lives. There's this calling to not be content in the rubble, but to build our lives out of the rubble, to clear the rubble out of the way, build our lives on top of the foundation of Christ. What an amazing application point for us. But there's also this application for us as a church that I wanted to challenge you guys with this morning. This is what we need to hear, especially coming out of two years, like COVID, Watching the way the landscape of the church has changed, um, at least in America, significantly over the last couple of years. Seeing how the landscape of our church has changed, like so many new people, like this kind of in and out of tons of people, and trying to figure out who you all are, and how we sort of get you all connected, and trying to cast this vision of what it means to be part of this church, and how we do roll up our sleeves and begin the process of building and working and contributing towards this, like you hear us talk a lot from this front about like your connectedness to our church, man. I will tell you, if you're gonna be part of the family, then we roll up our sleeves, we get our hands dirty, and we jump in. We serve. We're a part. We consider this more than a place that we come to to just sit and watch, because for a hundred years people sat and watched in Jerusalem, sat and watched. And nobody did anything. And my prayer for us as a church is that we won't be that. That we won't be a people that say, you know what, I wish this. I, I had this idea for that. If only I, if only they, these constant references to what it could be, what if. But where are the people that just say, I'm in? Let's do this, let's strengthen our hands for the work that God has called us to, and let's start this process together. Verse 20, he replies to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, or sorry, um, verse 19, but when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up and end on this. Doing good work for us, like living out our calling to follow Jesus does not come without challenge and adversity. It always comes with opposition. It was so cool, a few weeks ago, we were in our Rooted group and somebody mentioned, you know, it seemed like the minute we started Rooted and we started like actually praying and getting into the word and having these community conversations with one another, it seemed like all hell broke loose in my life. That sounds strategic to me. That the minute you get serious about something, the minute you begin to apply yourself to something in relation to Jesus, things start to go wonky. The opposition comes. And so it, it's natural that this happens, right? They come into Jerusalem. You've got these three men, Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem. They, they mock and they threaten Nehemiah and, and those who are, like, committing themselves to rebuild this wall. But just so you know, these three people are not just three randos. They're actually people with a lot of power. They, they, they represent, like, significant opposition, some sources say that Sambalat was the governor of Samaria to the north, that Tobiah was a part of, of a powerful family in Ammon. that both are like historically hostile towards Judah, towards Israel. And then you have Geshem, who, who's an even more powerful person that's mentioned, who ruled this collection of like Arabian tribes to the south and to the east of Judah. And so these three people have their reasons for opposing Nehemiah. They do not want to see what it is he's putting his hands to happen in Jerusalem. But verse 20 says, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We know that Nehemiah has some guts, right? We saw it in chapter one. And so here we're seeing that Nehemiah is really, not just a pencil pusher. Like he's somebody who's actually gonna make something happen. He's gonna work behind the scenes. He's not somebody who's just moving money and making some schemes. He's somebody that's gonna actually do it, apply himself. He's gonna coordinate the project. He's gonna make it happen. He's on the front lines and he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. In other words, God will see this through is what Nehemiah is saying to them. And then lastly, this, this statement, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem is a really powerful ender. The the way you sort of make sense of this is that he's telling them that they have nothing on us. You literally have nothing on us. You have no part in what we're doing here. All your efforts will have no effect in our rebuilding of Jerusalem because God's called us to do this. Whatever you try to do or come against, God's going to make it happen. You can do whatever you want. We're not going to back down in fear. Whatever you try to do is going to be opposed by the Lord. He's going to see this through because he told us to do it. Anthem. I don't know specifically for you in this room who your Sambalot, Tobiah, or Geshems are in your life. Who the opposition is that literally is coming against you. Who the people are that mock you and ridicule you and oppose you as you try to live out your life in obedience to the Lord as a follower of Jesus. It might even be Satan himself feeding you lies and communicating to you that you're worthless, that you deserve to sit in the rubble of your sin, that you shouldn't even try and repent and rebuild because there's no hope for you. You're too far gone. And whoever that person is, whatever that lie is, this is how you respond to it. You don't quietly take it in. (laughs) You don't just take it in your head and sit on it. What you do is respond with gospel truths and these realities that we know are biblical truths like the fact that god will make us prosper in the work that he's called us to do he will that god will bless us as we live our lives in faithful obedience to him that as we rebuild our lives on the foundation of jesus we will be able to stand firm That despite the opposition that we will arise and build and live out this calling that God has placed on our lives, that it will happen if we live in accordance to his plan to give glory to him. And to any opposition, like to any lie, falsehood that comes your way, what you say is, you have no portion. (laughs) You have no right. You have no claim on me. I'm a son or a daughter of the Most High God. You can try what you will, come against me all that you want, but his promises are true and he is faithful and he is good. Amen? Okay. Would you guys, would you guys stand? Let's, let me pray and then let's sing. Jesus, I thank you. Um, Lord, I know that there are some in this room who have bought the lies. I know there's some in this room, Jesus, who even as I talk about sitting in the rubble, that sin has just kind of enveloped them. And they're convinced here this morning that there is no hope, that there's no way out. And it's just not true. Jesus, you've granted us a way through your death and your resurrection on that cross. And God, for us in this room who call ourselves Christians, that hear messages like this and just think, yeah, I know, Yeah, God is good. Yeah, God is faithful. For just a moment now, God, would you allow these words to sink into our hearts and for us to actually believe what it is we verbalize, that you are good and you are faithful, that no weapon formed against us will prosper, that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it no matter how hard they try it will continue to move forward in Jesus' mighty name.